Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Julie Douglas. And uh, in our last episode, we discussed the ghosts of evolution. Uh, We gave you what was uh, probably a very sobering episode about uh, the state of the world, the state of the ecosystem, and uh, humanity's role in degrading it, and and the, the forecast for the future, which is not all that great. Yeah, we talked about picking apart the web of life and what happens and how it unravels and affects humans and other species and other flora around the world. So we're talking about trying to weave that web of life back together in this episode, specifically with something called rewilding. And the reason why it's so important uh, is because we have definitely squarely entered into something called the Anthropocene. Yes. Uh, this is, of course, the age of man. Uh, and this is, uh, we did a whole episode on this, uh, uh, which you can certainly go back to and find a link to on mm-hmm. the landing uh, page for this podcast episode. But this is the idea that in the past, uh, vast changes in the world have been caused by, uh, you know, ch- changes in, in the, in, in global climate, mm-hmm. ecological changes. But, uh, in this age of man, uh, we see the world being changed by humanity. Yeah, is the first time a species has become a greater force than the elements of nature. And just to call back to the episode real quick, um, we're talking about the Holocene period, previous to us, ending about 200 years ago with the steam engine. And this is according to Ken Caldera, who is a climate scientist at the Carnegie Institute of Science in California. Data retrieved from glacial ice cores show the beginning of a growth in the atmospheric concentrations of several greenhouse gases, in particular CO2 and CH4, which coincide with the invention of the steam engine in 1784. We can look at these ice cores Mm -hmm. and be like, oh, hey, that's evidence right there that this is when it began. And there's plenty of other uh, evidence that there's all sorts of man-made strata out there. Uh, but this is a good example of how humans are, are shaping the course of the earth. Yeah, I mean, agriculture is another huge area, right? You go back uh, 12,000 years in history, you see the rise of agriculture. We stopped being hunter-gatherers. We stopped uh, you know, going out here to get our plants and going over here to try and uh, catch or hunt an animal. We said, hey, we can grow the crops right here. Mm-hmm. And to do that, we have to change the environment. We have to to take what was once a uh, a field, what was once a forest, what was once a you know a bunch of shrubs, and turn it into a one crop environment that is uh, that is tightly controlled by the humans that have made it. And then eventually just pave over that. Yeah. Right. And, and build something on top of it. So the idea here is: can we reverse uh, the course of our actions, and can we do this through something called rewilding, which we'll get to in a moment? But before we should talk about human rewilding. You know, in, in looking at this topic uh, and, and the previous one, I keep thinking back to Daniel Quinn's 1992 book, Ishmael, uh, which I know a number of our listeners have probably read. Uh, the basic sell on the book, of course, is a man talks to a talking gorilla, but it's a, it, it's a deep ecological, philosophical work about what, where we are and where we're going and, and, if, and indeed if we can do anything to stop what we've done. Uh, just to read a quick quote from it, um, 
man's destiny was to conquer and rule the world, and this is what he's done, almost. He hasn't quite made it, and it looks as though this may be his undoing. The problem is that man's conquest of the world has itself devastated the world. And in spite of all the mastery we've obtained, we don't have enough mastery to stop devastating the world or to repair the devastation we've already wrought. There's a a part in the book where uh, Ishmael describes uh, human culture and the rise of technology as this this uh, this pilot in an airplane that's mm-hmm. been pushed off of you know like this, sort of like the experimental aircraft of old you know mm-hmm. you've all seen the footage they push it off the top of a building off the side of a cliff mm-hmm. and it ultimately is just plummeting but inside the aircraft the individual is you know pumping hard at the controls pedaling the pedals as fast as they can even though it's falling it's falling and it's just falling uh, you know faster and faster and but we keep doing all the things that we're doing we keep trying to pilot this aircraft that simply is not going to fly it's not going to to prevent us from crashing into the ground so in this podcast we're 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 asking that question can we stop the plane from crashing crashing the ground what are some of the things we can do to avoid uh devastation first we have to get out of the plane yes yeah that's clear right there right <laughs> it's not working for us and that's really what we're talking about like that that some of what we're doing uh, particularly from a technological angle, is not working for us. And how do we get back to a solution that does work for us? Well, rewilding in nature is certainly a solution, and we'll talk about that in a moment. But before we talk about rewilding in nature, you got to talk about rewilding humans, because that's where it begins. Yes, and uh, as with a lot of things rewilding, uh, the term already has various definitions, and it can already be sort of taken to, to mean one thing or another. Um in, in this, in this sense, human rewilding, though, is, uh, it, on one level, it's about reconnecting with nature. Um, it's about integrating. It's about, uh, c- combining time and nature with conscious living. It's about, it's not ne- necessarily about just completely abandoning your life. It's because it easily brings to mind, you know, the idea of someone quitting their job, throwing their smartphone into the, the ocean, and then trekking off into the woods to eat, you know, berries and field mice all day. But, but it, but it's about integration. It's about saying, all right, what are, what are some aspects of my life that I can that I can bring back to nature? Uh, places in my life where I can reconnect with nature and reconnect with uh, with the with the survival skills that uh, that that I originally had. I've also seen it uh, described in terms of uh, of modern humans as being domesticated. You know, we are the we're the we're the house cats that have been in the house so long that if we're suddenly outside in the backyard, we're going to die within an hour because we, we 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 don't know how to survive anymore. We've gotten away from our roots. Well, I mean, much of that is true because yeah. if you had to go out and survive on your own in a forest, it would be very difficult today, right? Unless someone had passed down the skills to you or you had paid to get those skills like (laughs) through rewild portland actually which offers a six-month-long rewilding immersion program you for the for the low low cost of five thousand dollars you could learn every sort of do-it-yourself thing (laughs) from metal smithing to hunting wild game and foraging skills and foraging skills i think are hugely important something that we overlook because for for millennia ancestors have been foraging for food and that's how they largely subsisted we we tend to think about you know, this sort of paleo diet where it's, you know, a, a bunch of meat, yeah. hunks of meat. But the truth of the matter is, is that we subsisted on vegetation. So we've talked about this before. We've talked about foraging and even entomophagy, eating bugs 
as ways to subsist um, in ways that actually would have less of an impact on environments and ecosystems. So the whole human rewilding thing is hearkening back to a simpler time and, and less of uh, a reliance on technology. Yeah, and it, it's easy to get the to get caught up in the language of it too, because you know we're we're saying things like reconnect with nature and your past, and just the mere fact that it sounds like the pitch for an ongoing uh, skit in the next season of Portlandia. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. it's, it's easy to just sort of dismiss some of the silliness of it, but but it is at heart about reconnecting with what it is to be human, of sort of relearning how to be a human organism. Um, and a lot of this is stuff that we we do feel a craving towards, like the hunter gatherer thing. Most of us don't do any kind of hunting and gathering, but I, I wonder to what extent we end up scratching that itch when we say get coupon crazy and we're looking for deals. Like we're sort of <laughs> we're, we're sort of trying to recapture the hunter gather, or certainly, I mean, I, I grew up in a in, in rural Tennessee, and there are plenty of of hunters in that area, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, in large part. I, I feel a lot of that comes from a culture of, you know, you're reconnecting with, with your past. You know, it's this part of your heritage, hunting for meat. And even though you're not depending upon that deer meat to feed your family as much anymore, you're, you, you feel a pull to the past. You feel like this is a part of what you are as a, as a, as a being, as an organism, and therefore you engage in it. You know, I was recently in Taos, New Mexico, and I visited the Taos Pueblo settlement, which is um, one of the oldest Native American settlements um, mm-hmm. in the United States. And one of the things that one of the Taos members was talking about is growing up in that village, which still practices the, the same sort of rituals um, in day-to-day operations as they did a thousand years ago. And there's no running water or electricity there. And so she said that as a child, she would run around, she would go and get the water, she would bring it home, she would be taught by the other children how to fish with her hands, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and they also played up in the mountains. She said that was her backyard, and they respected nature, and they understood how to communicate with nature. So she said mountain lions weren't a problem. They weren't getting eaten by mountain lions because they were so much more in tuned and had the information passed down on how to deal with you know these species around them and how to cultivate the the flora around them. And I thought this was it was such a an amazing place to visit to see that people were still, I, I suppose you would say, human rewilding, although all they were doing is just following their ancestors' way of living. As with a lot of human endeavors, it's uh, it, it's one of those areas where we, we end up complicating things several times over because you see the, the mix of, uh, of ecological responsibility here, mm-hmm. the, the idea that if we all behave just a little more in tune with, uh, with the environment, then, uh, then our, then our individual footprint is less, mm-hmm. and our overall environmental footprint is less, and uh, and it can all roll down to, uh, to to positive change. But then, on the other hand, it's a lot of this is ta- is caught up in heritage and culture, and uh, and and wanting to reconnect with our past. Yeah, and the interesting thing about that is that um, the flower, I believe, is her name, who led the tour, was saying that for seventy years, Taos Pueblo settlement. Uh, had a ongoing lawsuit with the government to reclaim lands, including Blue Lake, which is nearby. And they were saying that because the the government had taken over national park land and they were um, giving it to commercial entities, that a lot of their drinking water began to get tainted. 
And as a result, they began to see their environment change. And that's exactly what we're going to talk about today. This impact, mm-hmm. this, this web of life, um, that you just change one little thing and there's a cascade of events that follow. So this to me was such a good example of here's this group in place and, and little do we know here in the United States, but they're affecting change for the Clean Water Act, right? And Clean Air Act in the 1970s. Um, a lot of that was the movement from Native American tribes saying we need to respect the land and act with it. Yeah, even even though rewilding is a relatively new term, it is it's already kind of a big tent. Uh, but just bear in mind when thinking about it that you, it doesn't necessarily mean you're going to go live off the grid in the woods. Mm-hmm. It doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to you know build a bunker and prepare for the apocalypse and for you know to to, to hunt and gather amid the uh, the shattered ruins of human civilization or anything like that. It can be as simple as reminding yourself that nature exists, taking the time. To, and again, it, it's so easy to fall in the trap of making it just sound like hippie feel goodery mm-hmm. to some listeners, but just to, to reconnect with nature and to realize that you are a biological organism and you are a part of this ecology and you do not stand outside of it, no matter how unnatural the environments are that we've built for ourselves and the, and, and the, the structures that we depend on, both, uh, uh, informational and physical. Uh, it can be just as simple as, as, Thinking about your choices a little more, and uh, and making those choices a little more in step with the natural world. Yeah, definitely, it's all about choices when you really think about it. And perhaps even installing a Komodo dragon in your backyard. We'll talk about that <laughs> idea when we get back from this break. All right, we're back. Uh, we've been talking about rewilding in the human sense, uh, in, in the idea of undomesticating ourselves, about reconnecting with nature uh, and, and making better choices in our lives, all the things that kind of fall under the, uh, the semi-ambiguous term of human rewilding. Yeah, and now we're going to talk about rewilding nature, which is a huge topic. So we could talk about all the various projects going on with rewilding, but we chose to really focus on something that George Mombiant talked about in his TED Talk, and we're talking about rewilding with wolves. But before you can talk about rewilding with wolves, you have to talk about how there was a mass extermination effort of wolves over a very long period of time, at least in the United States. Yeah, and it's a, it's a, it's a rather involved and, f- and fascinating topic when you get into it because there's several different layers to it. I mean, there's the basic human fear of wolves, mm-hmm. which is generally unfounded. This is not a, a species that... That, that preys on humans. I, I feel like we've discussed this in the past. Uh, the wolf is is it's easy to build the wolf up in your mind as this thing that it is not. And so part of it is the fear of the wolf. Right. Part of it, it uh, also has to do with uh, with the ways that we were already changing the world and altering the environment and therefore altering the behavior of the wolves. You know, suddenly we're trying to keep a whole bunch of, uh, of prey animals uh, out here unmolested from, you know, basically trying to set the sheep or whatever apart mm-hmm. from the rest of the natural world. And then you get upset when the wolves come to eat the sheep. Right. So, I mean, right, there's part of this is agriculture, part of this is folktale. In fact, we even talked about, I think it was in New Mexico, there was a bus stop that was a a caged bus stop for children. Because the the fear, the ridiculous fear that the wolves were just out there ready to eat American children. Yeah, there there was a group that installed these because they they were against um, 
the protection of these uh, subspecies of the gray wolf, I believe. Mm-hmm. So if you look at the fact that before Europeans settled in the United States, there were 250,000 wolves roaming the country. And then you look at the fact that by the 1970s, only a few hundred wolves remained in the lower 48 states. You get that um, that wolves had been hunted and exterminated to, to quite a degree. Yeah, I mean, we're talking about putting out poison traps for them, putting out uh, uh, physical traps. Often they would put out two physical traps so mm-hmm. that they wouldn't just catch them with one paw, they'd catch them with two, therefore in you know trying to ensure that this animal would be captured and killed rather than just uh, escaping or uh, injured. Now, the effects of that can be in something called the trophic cascade, which is an ecological process which starts at the top of the food chain and tumbles all the way down to the bottom. And nothing illustrates this better than wolves, as told by George Mambiot during his TED Talk on rewilding. Because he says that after 70 years of wolves being absent in Yellowstone, when they were reintroduced... 1995. 1995. There was a huge effect, okay? And the reason that they were reintroduced is that the numbers of deer had just escalated and went crazy. And because there was nothing to hunt them... Uh, they had reduced the vegetation to nil. They were just grazing all over the place. So they thought, well, let's just bring in a couple wolves, knock down the population of deer, and, and that'll that'll help things, right? But really, it was this whole wilderness that seemed to have sprung from the reintroduction of these wolves. Yeah, it's pretty it's pretty impressive because again, you you expected the wolves to kill. The deer. You, it was just in you know, a situation of, oh, well, the bath water is a little too hot. Let's add a little cold water, and that'll balance it out. But as we've as we've made clear in, in our previous episode, nature is more complicated than that. There, there's yeah. far there's far much more going on. It's not just hot water and cold water. Uh, so, uh, what else happened? We see the deer starting to avoid the valleys and gorges where they could be easily killed by the wolves. So suddenly these areas are deer free. And so since the deer are no longer there to munch everything down to the mm-hmm. ground, stuff starts growing up again. And so very quickly you see these uh what had previously been, you know, bare valleys are are growing up into to forests again. Yeah, um Mambiot says that the height of trees quintupled in just 6 years and that you had forests of aspen and willow and cottonwood. And then as soon as that happened, all of a sudden there was a whole neighborhood of birds that moved in. Mm-hmm. And then the number of beavers started to increase because beavers like to eat trees, right? Mm-hmm. And beavers like wolves are ecosystem engineers. We talked about that in our last episode about these keystone species affecting uh, an uh, oversized change in their environment. Yeah, so they're they're building the rivers, they're providing habitats for otters and muskrats and ducks and fish and reptiles and amphibians, and they're moving in. And then also, you see that the wolves are not only eating the deer, right? Mm-hmm. They're also preying on coyotes. And then, because of that, the number of rabbits and mice, they begin to rise because they're not being killed off by coyotes, mm-hmm. which meant more hawks, more weasels, more foxes, more badges. Ravens and bald eagles came down to feed on the carrion that the wolves had left behind. Then bears, they were like, they got in on the game yeah. too. In um, large part because there's more shrubs growing more berries. I mean, they're, yes. they're, 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 they want to hunt and gather and now there's more to hunt and gather from. But now this is the thing. That's not even the craziest of changes. The fact that all these animals sprung up right. once the wolf was reintroduced. The crazy thing is that the behavior of the rivers, the actual landscape, begins to change. 
Yeah, indeed, because suddenly you're seeing uh, it means changing the traffic alongside the river. You know, what's walking around there is changing what's growing around the river. Mm-hmm. And as the vegetation changes, uh, it, it's a, it's affecting the stability of the waterways. Uh, there, it, There's it, less erosion. Less erosion. Yeah, it's it's actually changing the earth. Yeah, and it's regenerating forests, which are stabilizing the banks so that the banks don't collapse as often as well. And then they become more fixed. They meander less. And so really what you have is this this more stabilized Eden kind of moving in. Yeah. Now, of course, it's worth noting that there still is a golf course in Yellowstone Park. I don't, I don't want anyone to forget that when, when thinking about the uh, nature reclaiming this, uh, this beautiful park. And it is a beautiful right. park. I, I've been there, and it's, it's fabulous. But there's still very much a human footprint there. But, but this really does uh, just how the, the, the reintroduction of this one species. It's like we, 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 we as humans have this tendency, we don't, we don't, realize the value of things until they're gone. And this is kind of an example of that. And by by putting something back, we begin to see just how important it was to begin with. And I love how this I, like this should be a children's story because yeah. it it has that kind of role to it. You put one thing back and then there this comes back and this comes back. It's it's kind of like a, a more positive version of Thidwick the big-hearted moose with all of these uh, with the with the cascading effect. Well, yeah, I mean it's the reversal of the domino effect. Yeah. And it's amazing to see it unfold like this. Now, Mombiot also brings up an example of whales, not necessarily rewilding them, but understanding that whales provide an entire ecosystem unto themselves as well and are a good example, again, of what happens when you disrupt a species. And uh, the Japanese government, he says, had rationalized killing whales for a long time because they thought, hey, the number of krill and fish will rise if you remove the main predator, right? Which is, again, a very hot water, cold water understanding of how nature works. It's far more complicated. Than it's that. far more complicated, and it's really reliant on poop, it turns out, specifically whale poop in the oceans. Uh, because, as Mambiat says, they produce what biologists politely call large fecal plumes, when they come to the surface, these are huge explosions of poop right across the surface, up in the photic zone where there's enough light to allow photosynthesis to take place. And then those big plumes of poo are basically fertilizing or stimulating the growth of phytoplankton. And the plant plankton at the bottom of the food chain is stimulating the growth of zooplankton, which feeds the fish and the krill and all the rest of it. Yeah, which which ends up producing more and more sea life for humans to eat. So without taking them away, without reducing their numbers, you are already getting the same results you're trying to achieve by their removal. Yeah, if you remove them, you're actually reducing the amount of fish and krill, which, uh, t- to be fair, it, is, it does sound counterintuitive, right? You would think you'd take the predator away and you'd have more of the thing. But the predator poop is actually the life force for the thing. Yeah, I mean, it's... It, it, you can quote me on that. <laughs> So th- this this raises the question then: Is it is it this simple? Is there it, could this be done in various environments around the world? Could we just simply reintroduce a missing keystone f- creature, a missing uh, predator, and therefore make the difference? Like I can't help but think of uh, where my mom lives out in the in, in, in rural Tennessee. Right, deer everywhere. It's just just lousy with deer. You can hardly d- drive down the road without almost hitting one. You just you look out the window and there are like six out there looking through at you. Because there's nothing to to eat them. Even the the human hunters who are you know doing all they all they can, 
they still can't kill enough to keep the numbers down. Yeah, in, in a national park setting, I feel like this is a more straightforward proposition. Mm-hmm. But George Mambiant says, hey, um, let's just go crazy with paleoecology, which is the study of past ecosystems. He says, why not reintroduce some of our lost megafauna or at least species closely related to those which have become extinct everywhere? Why shouldn't all of us have a Serengeti on our doorsteps? And Yeah, and this is where he, he gets into, at times, controversial uh, areas. So certainly areas where there are plenty yeah. of people who, who disagree with him. Because on one level, you can say, yes, let's reintroduce species that were lost to this particular area. Mm-hmm. And in many cases, you can you can make those efforts, as we'll discuss. There are, there are some ongoing rewilding efforts to do just that. Okay, so before we get into some more of the wilder animals or mm-hmm. extinct animals, let's talk about Komodo dragons, because there are proponents of rewilding that argue that Komodo dragons may fill the gap in Australia's ecosystem left by Megalania, which was a giant lizard-like species that disappeared thousands of years ago. And this was a keystone species, like the wolf. And so their idea is that a bunch of roaming Komodo dragons could restore important ecological functions, like controlling the population size of native and introduced Herbivores. So if you have a bunch of herbivores that are just going to town on the, the vegetation, you don't have enough vegetation there, and that's uh, creating that trophic cascading effect in a negative way, maybe you bring back the Komodo dragon is the idea. Yeah, it's kind of like uh, in an office environment. You have that employee that leaves, and you suddenly realize, whoa, they really played an important role here. Right. We can't get them back, but maybe we can get something else like them, such as a Komodo dragon. In the office place. Right. And then there are some other ideas that, that I guess you could say are a bit more along the woolly mammoth, uh, bring back wagon. Yeah. And really sort of going more into the, the way back machine in terms of uh, humanity's impact on uh, the environment mm-hmm. and saying, uh, well, hey, we used to have megafauna everywhere. We used to have uh, the, not just elephants in Africa and in Asia, but we had uh, large pachyderms in Europe, uh, in uh, in North America. So what uh, what can we do there? Should should we bring? We can't bring those creatures back. As romantic as that idea is, and mm-hmm. as fascinating as the possible science of it is, it's it's not feasible for the immediate future. So can we just take African or Asian elephants and introduce them? into modern-day Europe, into uh, North America, and and have them fill this long-lost role to revitalize the environment. Now, of course, this would require that we set aside land or even reclaim land to do it. Mm-hmm. So that would certainly be one of the things that comes up in terms of logistics and criticism. Um, and there are often also are critics that say this is this would be a monumental effort and you're better off focusing on restoring the existing environment and, mm-hmm. and helping to maintain the, you know, actual species that live in, in yeah. the environment. And if you're worried about the, because the other side of it is that this would also help out African and Asian elephants, uh, and the critics would argue, well, helping out African and Asian elephants, if you're going to do that, those efforts are best restricted to Africa and Asia, mm-hmm. where where they naturally live. Right. So, yeah, there's all sorts of logistical problems here. We're talking about transporting the animals, Mm -hmm. talking about exotic diseases. And then, as you had kind of already alluded to, a poor track record of introducing or even keeping species that we already have 
So the idea is that you you start rewilding and you take away um, the attention from from the species that are already going extinct and need help, and and instead you're spending all your money and your attention on these different parts and different species. Yeah, you know, but it's also worth pointing out that um, Mombiot's TED Talk is a TED Talk, and TED Talks are are generally it's it's you can think of them in terms of a of a, a lighted beacon on the top of the hill mm-hmm. with the understanding that humans are not actually going to follow that beacon to the top of the hill. They're going to maybe climb it right. halfway, and if they right. climb it halfway, that's great. Uh, just by by seeing the beacon there, it gives us a frame of reference. And yet we need that beacon, right? Because we yeah. know that that is an example of something that can be done. And in fact, in her book, Rewilding the World, Caroline Fraser lists 21 rewilding sites throughout the world in which habitats are intentionally being rewild and species are reintroduced. And again, let's think about that wolf example. You know, that's the best case scenario mm-hmm. um, in this sort of closed system already, but you see a huge positive effect. So perhaps these projects can bring about the same sort of change, sea change, really. And there are also a couple other rewilding projects um, of note, and you can definitely check these out more if you want to find out more. Uh, rewilding Europe and rewilding Siberia. Yeah, the Siberia one I found particularly interesting because they're, uh, they're dealing in part with uh, reintroducing wild horses, which they say could possibly save us uh, from the uh, effects of global climate change. They say that in the winter, the animals trample and flatten the snow that would otherwise insulate the ground from cold air. And so that helps prevent the frozen ground or permafrost from thawing and releasing powerful greenhouse gases. So, And again, you see that cascading effect, right? I mean, uh, just to, to hammer the nail home again, I mean, over millions and millions and millions of years, uh, life on Earth evolves into a system that works. Events occur, and it has to uh, uh, the, the settings have to adjust, but mm-hmm. it, then it finds its level again. But then humans come along and just start messing with all the settings, turning all the dials around. So rewilding, in a large sense, is about saying, "Hey, what were the what were the factory settings before humans came along?" And even though we can't go back to all of those factory settings, right. there are things we can do. There are things we can say. Well, as humans, as a culture, we don't really need this. Maybe we can stop doing this. We can take this away. Or here's something that we took away without any reason at all. Why do we take all the wolves away? What if we, what if we give them back and, and everybody and everything can reap the positive benefits of that reintroduction? Yeah, I mean, I think it, in a way it's reframing our role in the Anthropocene. If we yeah. know this is the age of man and we know that we're now creating this strata of man-made materials, then that should be empowering enough to say that we could do something as simple as this, which is to turn back the clock a bit and to reclaim some of these lands and see these trophic cascadings in effect. And uh, David Biello, writing for Scientific American, I think had a really good thought about this. He said, quote, in the end, wilderness is a state of mind. The natural world can only persist now as a deliberate act of human will. That will require firm human purpose as a gesture of humility, yes, but also a form of self-protection. In other words, we don't really have a choice in the matter. <laughs> yeah, the airplane is plummeting. It's not flying. At some point, you have to realize... We need to stop pedaling and figure out something else that works. And and there's never a better time than now. Indeed. 
All right, so there you have it. Uh, as always, be sure to check out the landing page for this podcast episode. You'll find that at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Uh, you know, we'll include links out to uh, some of the stuff that we've talked about here, including that TED Talk, which uh, you'll probably want to check out as well. And the, the, the homepage includes uh, all of our blog posts, all of our podcast episodes, all of our videos, anything and everything Stuff to Blow Your Mind, you will find right there. And uh, what are your thoughts on this? Do you think rewilding could work? Do you think it could work in just certain areas of the world? Uh, let us know, and you can send your thoughts to blowthemind at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com.